It's good to see all of you again this morning. I'll invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Now, we, we began in this passage a couple of weeks ago, looking at verses 6 to 10, and we have all slept just a bit since then. So let's take a moment to remind ourselves of some of what we've been seeing Paul do, in, and I'm thinking in this section in particular, uh, but also the whole of the first eight verses of this chapter. Let's, let's remind ourselves of where he is leading us. Uh, we have seen a number of things in, in these first, uh, those first eight verses of the chapter, uh, primarily centered around this fleshing out of an others-oriented lifestyle. Do you remember us using that phrase a number of times? Uh, the lifestyle of those whom Paul calls the spiritual in verse 1. The lifestyle of the spiritual is an others-oriented lifestyle. Uh, these are those in whom the Spirit of God is working, and they are walking in step with that work. What we're seeing the Holy Spirit do in the lives of God's people is effectively to turn us outward from ourselves, uh, outward principally toward love and devotion to God himself, uh, and then in manifestation of that love, outward toward selfless love and service of God's people. And that's really what he's been emphasizing in particular here. This sort of life is a bearing one another's burdens life. Verse 2. And while it is true, and we saw in verse 5, that we must remember that we each bear our own load before the Lord. And that is true. Uh, yet we saw last week that there are a number of practical implications of the call that we're receiving here to a generous, non-self-fixated kind of life, this new life in the Spirit. So God's people settle in to a life lived on the rock of his word. That's one of those implications. So that they set apart gifted men to teach that word to the flock of God. This is a priority for God's people. And that was one of the main points he was making last time in verse 6. And that's good and proper for God's people to do because we know even as children of God, even those, those who have been saved, who have been rescued from uh, the present dominion and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son, yet we know we continue to live our life in this world, don't we? We are living our lives in a world where God has baked into the cake as it were, the principle that people reap what they sow. We reap what we sow in this life. And we saw that it's very likely that what he's getting at there for the Galatians is that they had a pattern since he had left them of not deliberately, meaningfully investing in this kind of skilled knowledge of and teaching of God's word to God's people so that the Galatians were set up for the very kind of dangerous intrusion of false teaching that uh, has occasioned the writing of this letter. But we are to be living lives that sow to the Spirit rather than to the flesh. That's what we saw in verse 8. That is to say, we meaningfully invest our time, our gifts, our resources to the building up of one another in the Holy Spirit. And we'll continue talking about all of that this morning, but there are some things that we now can add into the discussion that we find in verses 9 and 10. 
And if you're continuing notes from the last time that we were here two weeks ago, you'll remember we had gone through two of four points that Paul is bringing up in this passage. We saw in verse 6 the specific command of generosity. Then we saw in verses 7 and 8, Paul sort of zoom out and speak to the general principle behind generosity. Now in verses 9 and 10, he's going to do two things. In verse 9, he's going to continue to talk about generosity and the life of the generous, but he's specifically going to talk about a particular danger. So in verse 9, we're going to hear of a danger faced by the generous. What might be the danger to be on guard for if I am living my life deliberately oriented toward the service and the sharing with others? So a danger faced by the generous in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he will take all of what he has said here and give a concluding exhortation. This is what we'll hear from Paul this morning. Let's begin by reading uh, verses 6 to 10 once again. Uh, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul continues in this way. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I think we can handle verse 9 well if we ask in particular three questions. The first question is this. What, what does he mean by doing good here? Let us not grow weary of doing good. We talked last time, if you missed two weeks ago, that may affect uh, your understanding of this. One of the things we said is that in verse 6, when he spoke about good things there, uh, I, I tried to make it clear that uh, his intent behind that word is very much focused on material provision. So he was, he was speaking particularly in the realm of generosity with our possessions, with our material goods. Uh, and he is doing the same thing here in terms of emphasis when he writes about doing good. It can be a little hard for us to see, because it sounds pretty general, doing good. It sounds very general, and of course it does apply in a host of ways. There's a number of, of manifestations of doing good that go beyond just sharing uh, in, in tangible needs, physical needs. Uh, but given the things that we saw two weeks ago, and in particular the strong parallels, I'll just give you this passage again, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.13, it's one we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it is pretty clear that at least his... His uh, central emphasis here is on the sharing of our uh, possessions, the meeting of material needs within the body. So, for example, Tom Schreiner sums things up this way. He says of the statement of verse 9, Perhaps we can say again that doing good goes beyond helping others financially, but the latter, helping others financially, seems to be the focus of the Pauline exhortation. So this first question really can just be a reminder of two weeks ago. What does he mean by doing good? 
he is still meaning the same thing he meant in verse 6. He's still getting at a particular uh, manifestation of this kind of generosity. The second question for verse 9 is the question of why. Why does Paul feel the need to warn us in this way in particular when it comes to our generosity? Why does he need to warn us about not growing weary? Here's the question. Notice again, let us not grow weary of doing good. I wonder if you have personal stories or memories of decisions to act generously toward others that help you, even without hearing anything, relate very well to this encouragement against weariness. Have you ever been in a situation where you have acted generously, maybe in a short term, maybe over a long term, where this warning against weariness makes a lot of sense to you? He needs to warn us of this struggle because this is the inevitable one. Being committed to serving others, sharing with others, sacrificing for others in a world that is marred by sin is going to be an effort that constantly can feel like it has been wasted. And that makes us tired. What's more, we're all too familiar, I think, with the experience and maybe this will, will generate some specific and even present memory or present situation for you. Uh, we're not unfamiliar with these sorts of things. Wanting something so badly that we labor for it. Maybe for a long time. And it comes to nothing. That experience very much makes us want to give up, doesn't it? And I think before we hear the encouragement in Paul's words, we should be very careful uh, that we are thinking honestly about this life, what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. For example, he's not at all claiming here that if we just don't grow weary in a certain good endeavor, if we just keep sowing, that in due season we will succeed in that thing. That thing will come about if we just don't give up. That is not what he's saying. There are two things that he's done in this context that help, us, help protect us from thinking like that. Number one, he, he's saying what he says here after already having placed our works into two categories in verse 8. You remember that? There's two types of sowing. There's sowing to our own flesh and there's sowing to the Spirit. And we saw there, sowing to our own flesh has to do with working in service of the idol of self living to serve and please myself. And he's already told us that, that kind of work will come to nothing. I'll find nothing but corruption at the end of that path. And by contrast, sowing to the Spirit was laboring for the sake of God's kingdom and his righteousness. You remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, that kind of pursuit is, an ex is, is a good demonstration of sowing to the Spirit. So there's that. There's already two categories of our works. But we can't stop there either. We certainly can't say, for example, oh, so the promise of verse 9 then is, maybe it must be that anytime I'm sowing to the Spirit, anytime I'm laboring for something truly good and godly, that then 
I can expect to reap in the way that I am expecting and hoping if I just don't give up. No. No. Again, his promise here is not specific as to any specific endeavor. It's general. We could think of it this way. I, I find this helpful. I will never find that, I, uh, that labor that I have engaged in, sacrifices that I have made for the sake of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I will never find that that labor will have been done in vain. This is simply another way of putting the promise that we find in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He said there, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I think this is just a simpler way of saying exactly what he's saying there. So what we have here then, uh, number one, I have no promise of success in a particular work in this life. Not given that promise. Number two, I do have a promise though concerning the labor that I engage in for the sake of God's kingdom and his righteousness. Here's the promise. God is using my labor to produce the kingdom reality of eternal life. Verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Verse 9, in the proper season we will reap if we do not lose heart or give up. None of the work that we have engaged in for his kingdom will have been wasted. He uses all of it. And it bears fruit. And that's why, Paul says, we must not let ourselves grow weary of doing good. Growing weary. Think about what this would mean. Growing weary. This would mean succumbing to the illusion that God's purposes in this world are being thwarted. I see the good that I do the effort that I put out in a given direction, I see it seem to come to nothing. And I'm confronted with the notion in my mind that it has all been wasted. And Paul says to us, God says to us through the Apostle Paul, nonsense! What do you know? What do you know about God's intentions for the work that you have extended? What do you know? You don't know anything. You know the thinnest sliver of the surface of the situation. Don't get fixated there. Who knows why the Lord has not chosen to bless that particular effort, the particular outcome that you were so hoping for? It is true. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That's true. It's not a critique on the work. It's just a statement of fact. Maybe he's redirecting your time and energy elsewhere. That's fine. But the Lord does not waste a drop of time and effort expended in the service of the Holy Spirit and for the sake of his kingdom. Not a drop. So you have, let's think of a couple of examples of this. You have a family member or a friend. See if I can get through this example. This was maybe poorly chosen. Someone whom you love dearly and who 
does not know the Lord, probably all of us in a situation like this, you give years of your life praying for their salvation, reflecting the beauty of Christ to them very intentionally, bearing with them, like in the ways we've seen earlier in this chapter of Galatians, in taking the barbs for the sake of your Lord, and they come to the end and they die in their sin. And the question that can, come, can arise in our mind is, what good came of that? And here's what we have to learn to understand. My friend, God ushered in the kingdom using that work. He conformed you into the likeness of Christ with those labors. His verdict against rebellious uh, living was proven to be good and righteous by those labors. The Spirit's power to transform us was put on display for the principalities and the powers of the air to see. Ephesians 3.10 seems to suggest that matters. Who knows what other kingdom work God accomplished by means of your faithfulness? What good came out of that? What, what do we know? The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's what we know. Here's another example. Let's say you're in a season in life right now, maybe by virtue of an illness or an injury, some long-standing situation, maybe by virtue of your age in the season in life that you find yourself. You're in a season where you look back on your life and you look now at your life and you struggle with the feeling of uselessness. Because your sowing used to look like a ton of productivity in a number of ways. And now you can do none of those things. You feel useless to the Lord. And Paul's question for you is, what do you know about how the Lord will use you? Sow to the Spirit. Maybe it used to look like a great deal of activity and service in particular manifestations. And now it needs to look like something else. Now it looks like displays of humility, a, a graciousness about you that is willing to accept help and give others the opportunity to show their gifts to you and to receive those things. Maybe it looks like becoming a prayer warrior in ways you never had before. You're not a frontline guy anymore. You're, you're back in the back, praying like crazy. Fine. Let it look that way. <laughs> but to your dying day, no pass is given. I find no verse in the scriptures that give a pass on a certain approach to sowing to the Spirit after the age of, you fill in the blank. There's no pass given. There are only days in danger of being wasted because you lost sight of God's power to use you. His power to work through you even in your weakness, even because of your weakness. You lost sight of it. You grew weary. You know, another way to translate that statement, the New American Standard Bible puts it this way, you lost heart. Don't lose heart. God is not done with you 
And never mind if he's furthering his kingdom through you in different ways than before. You sow to the Spirit. Work to cultivate the Spirit on display. There will be a crop to reap from that. That's the promise that we see here. It's the answer to his why question. Here's another question we could ask in verse 9. When? When will it be reaped? Notice he says there in verse 9 that this happens in due season. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Literally, in the proper season or at the proper time. Some of that labor is going to be reaped, pulled to the surface on full display. Some of it's going to be reaped in this life. Some will be reaped in the life that is to come. But make no mistake, on the basis of the authority of God's word, we find this promise, it will be reaped. With one exception. He does have a little exception in here. In due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now, we misunderstand him if we think that he means to say here that God's plans hang on our faithfulness. May we never suggest such a thing. His, his plans do not hang on my faithfulness. He's simply pointing out here, the one kind of sowing to the Spirit that can't be reaped is the sowing to the Spirit that never happens. It's just a statement of common sense. If you give up, if you stop, then God's fruitfulness through you stops too. And I'm thinking specifically of your active participation in this fruitfulness. He can use this as negative case studies all day long. His fruitfulness may continue through us, but not in that same way. It doesn't mean that his fruitfulness stops. What it means is the honor of being a useful, willing instrument in his hands has ended. It's, uh, it's been put this way, that there is but one danger to the spiritual farmer. And that's the danger of the decision. Arrived at through weariness and lack of trust to simply stop sowing. There are plenty of reasons that will present themselves to us of why we might want to stop sowing. In your serving of one another and not being sufficiently appreciated in your giving and sacrificing in a place where you see the need before your very eyes sometimes expand far beyond your ability to meet those needs can be discouraging. We could go on. In all of these sorts of scenarios, Paul says, be careful not to give in to the temptation of weariness, of giving up. We read it already in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. The command is, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's a promise. It's a command. But it's not one often that we see with the eyes of the body, is it? We see it with the eyes of faith, if they are ours to see through. As Christians, though, do we need to see it with the eyes of the body? Is that the prerequisite that we hold out? For obedience? Aren't we the people for whom it's simply enough to be told by God's word? In due season you will reap. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. For us, those things are enough. We read it in God's word and we say, okay, okay, that's how it is then. 
Now, it's on the basis of all of this that he gives us his concluding exhortation in verse 10. Look with me there. He says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, the takeaway from this command in verse 10 is not hard to understand. Um, There is an element of it that can be surprising, perhaps, to us, or even confusing. This this zeroing in, that's the word especially, that can cause us to scratch our heads at times. We need to think about that, and we will. But notice first that the general idea is clear. Regarding our doing good, our service and sharing and sacrifice, Paul places a priority on these good deeds within the body of Christ. There's just no doubt that he's giving us a prioritization here in the statement that he makes. Now let's think about how that priority is to be worked out. And let's also think about how that priority, uh, what that means in light of our call of the Great Commission, the call to the rest of the world. How do we work this out? Well, here's the first thing we do. We embrace it and obey it. We receive God's word, whether it be warnings, claims, commands. We receive it as from God himself, which is what it is. We do not stand in judgment over it, do we? It stands in judgment over us. That's the first thing. Whatever this is calling us to, it's something to be embraced and obeyed. Number two, it's something that must be understood as we do with everything that that God's Word says. It must be understood within the context of New Testament teaching. It joins other New Testament statements that speak to priorities for us, in other words. This is not the only place where we're told of certain priorities, of our living, our generosity, etc. I'd like you to look at one of these with me. Turn for a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll be aiming at verse 8. It's the operative statement, but I'd like us to read the first eight verses as a whole. If for no other reason, then I just think this is a very helpful thing for us to hear, read aloud from time to time. This is a very clear and specific section of command for us. 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 1, he says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You can tell he's speaking in reference to relationships in the body of God's people and how we are to think of one another. Verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, how can he not be truly a widow? Well, he's about to explain this. Verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, there he explained what he meant, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. Now here it is in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's strong statements. Now that we've 
spend as much time as we have in Galatians, maybe we're not so surprised to hear strong statements from Paul. He's had a few of those in the book of Galatians, hasn't he? But you hear some clear priorities that he's laying out. One's obligation to care for the members of the household, his relatives, is very clear here. And in terms of proximity, this would seem to be the closest priority that individuals have so long as they're doing it in accord with 2 Thessalonians 3.8. We looked at that two weeks ago, if you remember. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There is, a, there is something very loving about that approach to our generosity and care for other people. But so long as we're doing this in accord with that biblical principle, this is, this is the close priority that we're given. But then you have the very explicit command in our passage in Galatians 6, 10, that the Christian community poses the next layer, if you will, of priority. Now, why is that? I would suggest to you that it, it operates on the very same principle that the priority he gave us uh, that we just read concerning the, the, uh, the family operates on. It's the same principle. This is your family now. There is a real uh, familial relationship. So he describes your fellow Christians, and in particular in this context within your local body, as those who are of the household of faith. All believers with you are members of the household of faith, aren't we? But local churches are visible manifestations of that reality. It is honorable to provide your family with care and support, and you have been adopted into the household of faith. This is what he's telling us. John Calvin says this. He says, we ought to be drawn with a special effect. To those above others of the household of faith, whom the apostle has particularly commended to us in everything. Now then, this does not at all teach us to limit our loving care and generosity to believers, does it? If you found that in what he said here, you've read too much into what he said. He didn't say that. It teaches us to prioritize them. To make a particular choice as to prioritization. But if you're like me, the question that comes up next is, well, what about my neighbors on the street beside me? What about the friends of mine outside the church that I have? Are we excluding the rest of the world? And I assume that implicit in your mind, the answer is, of course, no. But what I want to suggest to you is that it's actually uh, far more than that. It's, just, it's not just that we're not excluding that in what Paul is saying here. I want to suggest to you that that very purpose is provided for through this priority. It's provided for. I'm thankful to Grant Allard for preaching for us this last week as I was out of town. I have been on a lot of airplanes in the last, couple, in the last week uh, thanks to flights being minimized in Southwest. You wouldn't believe the places I've been to get to one place. But that means I have gotten to hear over and over again the exhortation that when those masks come down, you put your mask on first and then you put your child's mask on. That's, that's, that's not because you don't really care about your child. Uh, it's because you care about your child, isn't it? Your mask must be on, lest in the midst of trying to put his mask on, you pass out. 
You're not much used to them at that point. There's something very connected, in other words, about those two priorities and about the fact that one must come before the second. It's important that we see the relevance there. What we have in this prioritization, especially those at the household of faith, is a call on, uh, on the Lord's part toward his church, which means he's speaking to each and every one of us in here to do something very particular. He is calling on you and me to participate in the church's work of equipping the saints. This is what we are all here for, to build one another up, right? To exhort one another toward love and good deeds, to watch out for one another, give correction when needed, give support and encouragement in those times that would lead us to potentially despair or to question. We're here for one another in this way so that we might equip one another for the work of God's people. What does God's community create in its people? It creates lives lived according to perspective. It creates lives settled and joyful. It eases burdens. It protects joy and peace. It fosters the very thing he's been writing about in this whole section. It fosters outward-directed lives lived. The church gathered does all of those things. And then all of us, what we do is we go home. (laughs) We go to work. We go out Friday evening. And now, that is the kind of person who your neighbor lives beside. Or who your co-worker works beside. Or who meets up with them for coffee that evening. Now that's the kind of person they're meeting with. Not who you used to be. When God's people are prioritizing their roles of mutual edification, protection, blessing, building up, conforming to the image of Christ, it is a gift that the whole world around us winds up receiving. You see the connection there. This is not an uh, inappropriate, cultish withdrawing in. It's simply an affirmation that only by being connected to the life-giving vine, which is Christ, Does life come? Does growth come? Does beauty come? Does health come? Only through that connection do those things come. Do you really want your neighbor to be exposed to life? Well, then you need to be in a church body that prioritizes the care of its members, one with another. You stand back at these sorts of things and you you just marvel. God is so smart. You mean he's, he's known exactly what he was doing all the way along? Maybe I've had years of reading this and kind of just putting it aside, but going, man, God, that sounds kind of rude. And then I, I suddenly realized, no, I just didn't know what I was talking about. He always knew what he was doing. He knows what he's doing. This is why we trust his word implicitly. Now, as we move toward closing, what I want to do is put the two pieces together we've seen. Verse 9 and verse 10. There's a realization that he gives us that we definitely ought not to miss. So we have the encouragement and the warning against weariness in verse 9. And we have this uh, specific note of priority of service, others-oriented living within the body of Christ in particular. I put those two things together, and here's what seems to me comes out. There are going to be plenty of times in the church when our efforts, labors, 
sacrifices for others are going to turn out in ways that will make us grow weary, that will tempt us toward weariness, toward giving up. You see it as you go back from 10 to 9? We live this life of generous and genuine attention to the needs of others within the context of the household of faith. And as we do, we are going to be tempted to grow weary. And what does Paul tell us? He says, don't. Don't do it. Don't do it and don't not do it just because it's wrong. It is wrong. But don't do it because God works through the spiritually obedient life when we cannot see it. That may be perhaps the great truth that we're fundamentally reminded of this morning. If you're to take one thing from here, going from God's word, that God can be trusted to be accomplishing his good purposes always. So I don't have to live by sight. That's what that means. I really can make the decision to walk by faith in his word, in his promises, in his character. And that when I do that, when I make that decision, <coughs> excuse me, when I make that decision, I'm making a reasonable decision. I'm making a smart, informed decision. We've come out of some decades, very unfortunate decades, where Christian teaching has been sort of warped with this thought of a leap of faith, faith, uh, a, a, a leap into the dark with my eyes closed. No, no. When I decide to trust God's promises, I'm doing what is intelligent. I'm doing what is smart, what is wise, what is reasonable, because he has revealed his character to us. We know who we're dealing with well enough that when he tells us something, we can trust him and walk forward on the basis of it. And in this case, what we find is he has given us, in fact, promises. In places like this, 1 Corinthians 15, that our labor in the Lord is never in vain, ever. And my prayer for this morning is that God's word has accomplished, even in this very specific, particular way, what has been written in Hebrews 12, 12 to 13. Can I read this? And I'd like to read it from the New American Standard Bible, so if you have an ESV, maybe just listen. My hope is that God's word has accomplished for us what has been written here. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we bow our heads before you this morning as your people, and we confess that so often our hands do grow weak and our knees do grow feeble. We confess further that it is your truth that strengthens us. When our knees have grown feeble, we have wandered from the truth that would sustain us and hold us up. And we thank you this morning for reminding us not to find satisfaction in what we can see with our eyes. We ask you, Lord, again this morning to help us, 
Help us to find our satisfaction in the certainty of your promises. And we do thank you for those promises. Lord, we praise you together this morning because in Christ Jesus, all your promises are yes and amen. We praise you that he is the one that has become to us wisdom from you, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Lord, we boast in you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.